So the rules of engagement here are that um, I'm here to serve you, not to deliver a presentation. And so as we go, I'll leave plenty of white space as I talk. If necessary, I'll leave slides aside. And if you have a thought or a question, you want to challenge me, please do. I think that's consistent with the quality of this group. Just come at me with whatever questions the Spirit moves you on as we go, and we'll see where that takes us. So, Guy, I'm going to try to do this by remote, which feels a little challenging. But let me just uh, call out the first slides, if I can. Uh, go forward. Um, first of all, the evidence base. Um, conscious, of course, that we're applying science to the process of uh, God's business. And so you will hear me say again and again today, and if I don't say it enough, I'll say it now to start the ball rolling, that I am firmly of the conviction and the belief that nothing, that nothing happens without God's, uh, God's uh, declaring it to be possible and making it possible without the sovereignty of God. Having said that, I believe that God has given us science, he's given us intelligence, he's given us numbers, and by bringing those two together in the right relationship, we find a new richness and a new understanding. So let's use the faculties God gave us. And starting that process, we began by doing a lot of work. I personally read over 120 books um, about church growth and how to grow churches and every aspect of churches. How would I find the list of books? I asked lots and lots of you guys, what books have you read that you think are distinctively good books? And I read every one of those books. And I have to say, when I got to the end, I felt a little bit like a person who was worried about uh, being overweight and was reading literature on slimming. There were a lot of recurring themes. There was kind of a, a vast array of statements, but a lot of anecdote, a lot of passionate speech, but very little insight that I could actually apply or bring back to you all. So it wasn't without value, but it was um, very frustrating and somewhat unproductive. I went to talk to experts. I found more than 75 people who would spend a lot of time with me, two to three hours, telling me about the things that I was concerned about that I felt I needed to understand and learn much from that. From some of those, we went out into the field and with the help of Guy, who's ably manning the projector today, um, we went to 42 different people and asked them specific questions over long periods of time about things that we were trying to understand. And then we had the privilege of working with several different groups in Sydney who workshopped with us over a period of nearly a year. Remarkable experience. When we sat them all down in a room, they were all senior ministers from roughly the same geography of Sydney. Many didn't know each other's names. When we asked them to talk about it, in fact, one guy said to me at the beginning of the first session, very senior guy, kind of a natural leader in the group, he said, uh, I'm here on time so that I can leave early. I think that this is not going to be a whole uh, lot of use and a good use of time, but I wanted to come and tell you that, that you're just another one of those guys from head office who's going to waste our time. This is a Christian minister. And I said to him, I've got one piece of research I want you to look at before we go any further. See, I have a piece of research on the growth effectiveness in churches and how you use your diary. And what I can comprehensively prove to you is when you go home today, you're going home to waste your time. Uh, he was a little confronted by that, but he was a, he's a strong Christian man who developed a level of cynicism about the system over time. And uh, out of that came, as so often does, an amazing relationship. He's now one of our most enthusiastic supporters and has been a key driver in that workshop. We've learned a lot from them. And then we had this amazing gold mine. One of the best data sources I've ever received or seen 
on how organisations work. We've been collecting since 1991 on detailed data on churches, not only in uh, Anglican and Presbyterian and other denominations, but right across the spectrum, this incredibly rich and detailed data that we've really been unable to make good use of. In fact, when we arrived, the denomination we were working with were considering cancelling their commitment to that research because they really couldn't make sense of it. It didn't make a lot of sense to them. So it's been an incredibly rich database and one that we've uh, sought to inform ourselves about. Throughout that process, we've kept a very simple model in mind. All of you will have a version of this in your minds. You'll have different words for it. You'll have different ways of expressing it to each other. But the notion is that in God's providence, people are challenged by engagement with Christ. If, uh, if it is to be so and they're given encouragement, uh, they can grow in their knowledge and understanding of Christ. They can be trained to be leaders and ministers in Christ and they can help to organise and deliver an effective uh, message to those who have not been fortunate enough to discover that grace in the normal course of events. Uh, we've called it Disciple Making Disciples in the theme of Matthew 28, 19 to 20. And the notion here is that the underlying molecule which drives the thing that we would like to see built, the church, is the molecule of disciple-making disciples. Without that, it doesn't go. And through proclamation of the word, through prayer, and through people, and through the interaction of those three powerful ingredients, uh, disciple-making disciples are raised. They, in turn, raise other disciples. And it is for us to encourage and support that process it is amazing how often, with the very best will in the world, keen as we are to serve God, we fall into the type one error that Christians, just like other secular people, fall into, which is we try to do it in our own strength. Our days become filled with activities which are all an expression of how we're going to do God's work for him. If I can ask you to just think of one thing today, this is an organizational guy talking to you. It's a guy who's made 30 years of living out of moving organizations through activity, do not do that as your priority. Place prayer, the word, God's people ahead of all those things and work quietly to raise disciple-making disciples. That is the key message that uh, underlies all of this. So, Guy, next. And that is a non-trivial task. You were called to spiritual dedication through obedience, we're called to demonstrate uh, our love for one another in a signal and profound way. We're called to show concern and witness to the lost. And we're called to live a life of costly sacrifice. So at the heart of those words lie a profound and challenging proposition. And I don't know what it's been like for you, but as I've made my journey, I've come to understand that God works in people like me, fallen, arrogant, uh, worthless people through suffering. And so it is a course of suffering that we're called to pursue in a constructive and trusting way, relying on prayer and coming to know God and the intimacy of God as we go. So let's move on, Guy. We should start by acknowledging that the church as an institution is a profoundly despised by society in which we live. This is very recent research, uh, McCrindle and Olive Tree Media. Um, and they're concerned about child abuse. They're concerned about how we always ask people for money. 
how we live in big buildings and have authoritarian styles. And all of these are things that are regrettable but understandable in the context of how people think about that thing called church in 2011. Certainly we've given society every excuse to think about the institution of church in this way. But you know, the profound truth that sits behind all that is quite encouraging, which is that 74% of Australians believe in God. Uh, A large number of Australians, 53%, believe in heaven. A remarkable 43% of Australians believe in the resurrection. Unbelievably esoteric and unlikely proposition, which is God sent his son to earth for some reason that's not well explained or understood to the secular mind. This person was going to be without sin sacrificed, raised on the third day, and as a result of the metaphor or arrangement which came out of that proposition, we're all going to be saved. 43% of Australians believe that. And so you can see that in contrast to the, to the awful proposition which is seen as the church, they have these beliefs. So. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. You see, it takes me to two, two propositions, bootlegs and Baptists, which is you know why alcohol was banned on Sundays in America in the 1930s? Because the Baptists didn't think you should drink on Sunday, and the bootlegs didn't want people to sell alcohol Sunday so they could sell it for a premium. And there's a bootlegs and Baptist rumor around, which is Australia is extremely negative to God and Christian belief, And it's a proposition that we willingly go along with because it explains our own inadequacy before God and our lack of effectiveness. But it's not true. And there is an excuse in Australia, which is that, as Manning Clark would would say, a man who knows Australians well, I'm a new Australian, by the way, 1987. December 1987, I became an Australian. And so uh, I've made it my business to study what you're all like. And it's, um, it's very clear to me, more clear to me, I think, than it is to you who are born as part of that wonderful race. But Australians are private about their beliefs. There's a historical reason. You see, we had to deal with a flogging pastor, had to deal with lineage and parents who might have been stealing bread or murdering, or maybe doing something like stealing cutlery. Americans, you see, don't have that problem. They all came over on the Mayflower. They were honest um, Baptists and Methodists. Probably their relatives were boundary riders who took the gospel to outlying farms. They're just waiting to be asked how they think about God. Not Australians. We're very quiet about our beliefs. We don't think it's polite to ask other people about their beliefs. But when you get people to fill out an honest appraisal of where they stand, they're God-fearing, God-believing people in the main. And so have courage. This is the data. This is really what is happening. But that stands in contrast with the fact that, um, uh, that people don't go to church very often Guy, just back one slide, you're jumping ahead of me there, which is the 20%. So regular church attenders only 20%, but 43% of Australians believing in the resurrection. And I can tell you, I don't have time today, but the cross-sectional data shows that those beliefs have not changed in 50 years. Again, there is a total lie which is being promoted, which is Australia's on some sort of slide towards godlessness. That is not so. It's a media proposition. Yes. Yeah, great. I understand. 
Um, two attributes that I would draw your attention to, one we'll explore in a little while, which is that the 70-plus-year-olds have a view of religion, which is the view that was consistent with being an incumbent church, an all-inclusive, tick-the-box of your Church of England or Presbyterian proposition. Don't ask too many questions. Don't require any level of passion or life-changedness, because that would be embarrassing and awkward, taking religion too seriously. And so there is a whole generation of very senior Australians who believe that, predominantly believe, that the way to witness for Christ is not to witness at all. Okay, the way you live is all that's required. Do not speak of Christ, because that would be offensive and somehow intrusive. Nothing wrong with that belief system. It's a very, very strong belief system held by very senior people that we come across in our church lives and church experience. They love Christ, but they've been conditioned to think about it deliberate another way. The other part answer to your question is, there is absolutely no evidence, none, that the belief in the metaphysical, in God, and the things Christian has changed at all in 50 years. None. Um, that's an important lie to uncover today. Next. I have all the detailed data to support that. One of the things I learned about when I first came to Australia was that uh, you should talk about sport when you went to a meeting with an executive. Do not have anything else in common? Do not think about his business? Talk about sport. And you, you, you put an open-ended question into the meeting which allowed the person to resonate and direct you to the sport type that they were most interested in. And then you pretended to know as much as was necessary about that sport to let them engage in a conversation with themselves about sport. <laughs> they always felt very good about that and they felt very good about you for giving them that opportunity. But you know, it's a strange thing, but a very close second to live sporting events for Australians is going to church, regular church. Now we'll look at in a minute why that's a little different. Regular church is a normal church service, but it's only 2.6 times a year. So 2.6 times a year, mum gets them out of bed and says, we're going to church this Sunday. And they all go down to church because God is important. God is there. God is to be respected. God needs to be dealt with before death. But part of that contract isn't going to be coming to church on a regular basis because what they find and see in church is not consistent with the message that's being promoted in church. So we are, you are, I can see looking around, members of the most spin-discerning generation in the history of the planet. Looking at the spin-discerner now. You spot spin, country mile away. And so when a spin-discerner goes into a traditional church, you see a person at the front who's usually a God-fearing person proclaiming a message of transformation in life. And they look around them and they see a group of people who are not transformed, in no way reflecting the propositions which we just reviewed. And so they understand that they're being exposed to spin. And so they don't want to have a bar of that thing called church because it's not authentic. So they believe in God, they're seeking God desperately. They don't have the permission to talk to each other about God. They're all praying to God in a kind of confused way. They're making up a version of God which is broadly Christian but is largely untutored because our churches have become a place where God doesn't really express himself in the community. Next guy. And you see, one of the lies that's gone along with that proposition is that we started to tell each other that you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Now in a fine sense, the answer to that question is correctly, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. But as a fallen, broken, struggling Christian, I don't know where I'd be without church fellowship. 
In fact, the research shows, and we have a slide on it later, that if you don't go to church and continually be nourished by that encouragement and that fellowship, your Christian beliefs fall away and degenerate at an alarming rate. So there may be a few ascetics sitting on pillars, uh, no pun intended, Simon, uh, sitting in caves, staring into the horizon who are all right with God, but most of us don't cope on our own. And yet 45% of frequent churchgoers don't think you have to go to church to be a Christian. So we have a disastrous misunderstanding and miscommunication around a disastrous proposition which we have called church. And the result is that uh, people are increasingly not attending church. And all of the major incumbent propositions have been falling away steadily over the last 50 years as less and less people go. Intriguingly, the beginning of a glimmer of alternative light, some of the other Christian movements have succeeded in bucking the trend and actually growing in the midst of that proposition. Next slide. In fact, if you look from a census point of view, what you see in absolute numbers is that Anglicans are not in decline, for example, the blue line. They're just flat. See, the Catholics are actually growing for reasons that we'll understand in a minute. Um, and, uh, and in fact, the most alarming growth is from the not stated, not religious. A much misused red line on the chart, which you could say, aha, I gotcha. You've not been telling us the truth. A lot of Australians don't believe in religion and don't state a religion. The simple proposition is that the research shows that those Australians spend as much time in prayer and being concerned about God as the Australians who go to church. Now the alarming thing about that is that people who go to church don't spend more time, but the interesting thing is that those who don't go to church spend as much time. This is a vote against church. Let me explain how that's come about. Guy. There have been four massive assaults on the institution called church. In 1914-18, Christendom went to war with itself. Almost in the Christmas of 1914, Christian men and women stopped the war. Christmas 1914, they stopped shooting, they stood in no man's land and they celebrated the birth of Christ. But it wasn't enough. They went back to their trenches, they opened up with machine guns and mustard gas and continued to shoot down and kill praying Christians on the other side of the battlefield. And if you want to go into First World War poetry where you see the rawness of it, you'll see how people became disillusioned with the thing called church. Dulce et decorum est perpetua mortui sunt, as we were taught, Simon. A terrible sense that the institutions had let them down and that the Christianity that they'd known was hollow. And then the war to end war, all wars didn't end there. We had a depression and then we had a second world war, a second assault on the institutions that uh, held out Christian belief and Christian clarity. If you could just hit the button again, Guy. And so we see a really disturbing pattern, which is the institutions were attacked and destroyed as never before through those two great world wars. After the world wars, people... uh, were chastened by what they'd experienced. The church was at a low ebb in terms of its prestige. There was a very strong movement towards some form of communism, which wasn't communist, so socialism. And uh, Christianity was moved to cooperate uh, with that proposition. And so we surrendered our schools, in large part, to a new form of concerned social culture. So the schools were surrendered 
and people no longer were taught Christianity in the schools. The deal was in England, which I know well from this period, the deal was that schools would hold an hour a day of religious instruction now that they had new, not specifically religious teachers. In due course, the church failed to assert that and the schools were surrendered. Catholic schools not. And that's the reason why you see Catholicism still growing in headcount. But Anglican schools, Presbyterian schools, the others were lost in large measure. And then we attacked the family in 1971, no-fault divorce. We're no longer sure of our values, haven't been taught any values at school, and now we're told that divorce should be easy. And so 42% of all marriages fail. Uh, 42% of all children born of marriage in Australia no longer have two-parent families. Such Christianity as was spoken of between divorced parents is discredited by the children or among the children. And now we begin the attack on the individual. The attack on the individual is the most lethal of all. You want to think about how that's being conducted? Just think of pornography. Pornography, hardcore pornography that takes sane men into dark little rooms to do shameful things. Softcore pornography that invades our living rooms every day. Addling the brains of men and women who can no longer relate to each other as individuals. We become sex objects, objects of loathing, objects of vile pain and concern. And the statistics are that more than half the men in the room here today will be brutally assaulted by that proposition, ashamed of it, wondering where to take it. You are the victims of the fourth great attack on what used to be Christianity. Uh, you can resolve that problem with God, easy to do, but the institutions of church have faced unprecedented attack. We have to turn around now and do something different if we're going to rescue uh, this particular set of institutions. God doesn't need rescuing. Christianity won't fail. But if you hold these institutions dear and you think that you have a role within these institutions, it requires a new kind of ferocity, a new kind of clarity, a new kind of self-reflection as to how we should take this battle forward because it's getting very serious. Princeton Index, piece of American data, they like to measure a lot of things in America. Um, Princeton Index shows an alarming fall-off since 1960 in uh, the level of involvement and engagement with churches and church belief systems, consistent with that data. If you remember, right in the midst of that, we're taking the schools apart and beginning to see that change. Next. And as a result, we've seen a hollowing out of generations. In fact, this is the classic incumbent church proposition, which is older people were in the habit of going to church. They missed the school attack. We've already done school. They missed the divorce attack. My parents-in-law were each children of nine siblings. And each of them could proudly say to me that each of their eight brothers and sisters, 16 others, had all been married for more than 50 years. They were a blessed generation who were born and married and, and survived before the family attack took place. I don't think their marriages were necessarily any better than others, but it wasn't within their expectation set that there would be a walkaway time if it didn't work out. And so they're there, and then it's been hollowing out since, and I'll explain how the hollowing out's taken place um, in the incumbent church systems. Uh, this has been described, this slide, as the pig in the python. If you watch this slide and we animate it, and we push it out 20 years, the pig passes from the less seemly end of the python and disappears. 82 years of age, the average death age for Australians. It's actually coming down for the first time in modern history. 
as Australians become uh, obese. And we don't know how to solve that problem. We think it has something to do with personal pain as a population-wide phenomenon, but it's reducing life expectancy in Australians. Pretty grim. And to the question earlier, uh, what we know is that um, the older generation have all of the attributes of a generation that took church for granted, had a supine, a non-active proposition in the way that they went about um, supporting their church life. Next slide. We also know, interestingly, that churches, this is US data again, the blue line is churches that have taken their message very seriously, have stuck to their guns, and have preached faithfully from the word. We know that those churches have continued to grow despite these assaults. The light blue lines, sadly, are the incumbent churches in America who were large and were successful and didn't see the attack coming, haven't been mobile enough in meeting the attack and reorienting the way they do church in order to meet this new and dangerous enemy. What's exciting about talking to you all today is I take it every man and woman in this room has committed themselves to an alternative way of reviving the thing we call church, courageously committed to do that. You are at the leading and attacking edge of the counterattack which which may be possible under God. With enough prayer, enough faith, enough commitment to the very things which, uh, which, uh, which are proclaimed in the Bible. We can grow and we can turn the tide on this thing. But the large institutions, the incumbent churches, are struggling with making that change. You need to be catalysts in that process. And this is somehow some of the most disappointing and challenging slide work, which is we can see marriages falling in the light blue. We can see with no-fault divorce that divorces spiked at 60% of the same number of marriages which occurred in the year of uh, of no-fault divorce, 1975, Lionel Murphy, uh, and they settled down to a modest 42% of all marriages. Next slide. What we can see is that the fall in attendance of churches is a direct reflection of the fall in the number of, and this is Anglican data, where I had rich data, the fall in the number of children born to stable Anglican marriages. And so you see the very symptom that you would fear, which is an incumbent church that takes as its birthright that it will be the religion of the population, has no aggressive genes in it which are seeking to make God's word real and intrusive and life-changing, that church is having its water supply cut off. Its people are divorcing at the same rate as the rest of the population. The children are not learning lifelong habits of church attendance. They live in two suburbs every other weekend. They're left out and they're no longer developing a life of church attendance. Anyway, maybe that's a good tradition to give away. I mean, who values a life habit of church attendance for its own sake. And it's better than no church attendance. That's an awfully poor placebo. And this data supports the notion that that is what is happening. Next slide. And as a result, we now have two generations who substantially have seen substantially increased numbers of people who've never been to church, who don't know what it's like to uh, speak of church, to speak of God. Uh, they still nurture. C.S. Lewis's empty space, God's space. God has programmed them to seek God, but they no longer have a clear pattern, a clear approach to seeking God as they did once before. Next. So are you depressed? Are you challenged? Do we think we understand what the nature of the problem is? You see, Australians are God-believing, 
Australians are church despising in increasingly large numbers. Australians are church disrupted in increasingly large numbers. But Australians are God-believing. And the manifestation of that is an enormous number of Australians are going to regular church on uh, during the year. So let me just walk you through a little case example. This church has 80 regulars who come every week. You go to their church on a regular Sunday, you'll find 100 people sitting in that church because 40 of them don't come every week. They come a couple of times a month. So there are 120 people who come more than once a month of which 100 will be sitting in church on any given Sunday. What's remarkable, and we can see it in the data, is that same little church of 100 people will see 100 visitors, trying to make sense of that, a couple a week of church visitors. People have been to church who are coming to their church on that Sunday to see if it is where they should worship. An amazing 60, so one a week in a 100-person church, who are not church visitors, have been called by God to come on that Sunday seeking God. 280 who come less than once a month, 2.6 times a year. If you go up to them and say, as I do in a big church, are you a regular of this church? The honest answer to that is, yes, I am. The unanswered question is, 2.6 times a year. I've been coming for the last 30 years. I see no reason to come more often. This is my insurance policy. I know that this is a non-intrusive, non-fundamental, non-demanding proposition that I bought into. I'm kind of doing the intelligent version of what the rest of you are doing. I come a couple of times a year. Sure, God won't forget me on that basis. And then 610 people come to Christmas, Easter, because it's kind of fun, and you sing Christmas carols, and uh, weddings and funerals. And you know, the research on that shows that they're deeply moved by those experiences. They're drawn closer to God they're open to God at those times. So my question to people running a 100-person church is what are you doing with the 1,200 people who come into your church every year if you're statistically normal? And the answer is mostly embarrassed, uncertain, disorganized, ignoring, cold-shouldering, not in church plants because we've got small enough numbers we, we know when someone's new. But you're kind of forcing, in some senses, an equation which is being neglected in the larger churches. Um, be encouraged. The numbers seeking God are huge. This isn't a license to go to every barbecue with a luminous T-shirt and say, where are you with God? Um, that would be an offensive thing in an Australian culture, probably non-productive. The guy drinking beer is deeply concerned about God, hasn't got a well-reasoned proposition about God, and there are three of his mates listening in. You're on for a battle. And you will confirm the stereotype uh, which he and his mates believe in. But showing the love of Christ to people who come to his doorstep and doing that in an organized and systematic way, surely a thing that we should think about doing. The numbers are huge. God has laid up an amazing feast here to mirror our incompetence. The more incompetent that we are, the more ineffective we are, the more generous God has been with the provision of visitors seeking God. And every one of these is a tragedy if turned away. The person who came looking for God didn't find him in your church. Next. And the reason is this. This is um, an incumbent profile, so my apologies if you don't recognize this in your own church profile. But we ask people on a particular Sunday in 2006, and we've asked them again in 2011, to tell us about a number of dimensions of their experience with church. An amazing 
85 to 90% said that the person who was leading the church was an inspiring example of Christian leadership. There is a great respect for the office of priesthood or the office of church leadership, if that terminology makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, They're also very clear and open, remarkable number of clear and open communicators who run churches, but they're hopeless planners. Only 40%, 30 to 40% could say they were aware of a plan for their church or knew what their purpose in the church was. And it's kind of amusing because Simon and I spent a lifetime planning, and the more planning we've done, the simpler our model has become. What a plan is, is a list of things to get done, preferably not more than three or four, because we're all human and can't cope with long lists. A list of names against the list, and a list of deadlines and responsibility for delivering it. What many of you think a plan is, is a thing that starts with a mission statement, because you recognize that terminology. Jim Collins writes a lot about mission statements and hedgehogs and foxes, hedgehog principles, focusing on one thing and not trying to do too many, all very good common sense. But it can lead you very easily to the greatest travesty of modern civilization, which is, you know, I'm about to tell you a secret, which can't go outside these four walls which is every corporation in Australia on a traditional incentive scheme uh, is, is delivering satisfactory underperformance for a good reason. They're paid a bonus. And what they do is they worked out that the best way to get paid another bonus is to persuade the shareholders and the owners that it's really difficult to achieve performance. And if they achieve it, they should be paid a bonus. They must not persuade the owners that there's lots of opportunity in the business because then they'll be asked to deliver it next year and fire the year after. So there is a corporate conspiracy which is unspoken about in society which is playing the game of expectation management. And the way that it's documented is through a thing called a budget. A budget is a ritual process to avoid loss of face for corporates to lie to each other so that they can achieve bonuses. And it's a large document, it's a complicated document and it's a document meant to confuse It's a document full of large and broad-based statements about values and objectives and mission statements and all other kinds of kerfuffle that have nothing to do with getting anything done. First time I was involved in church planning process, we had one man full-time on refining the words of our mission statement. And we didn't have a good answer to the question, which was, why isn't our mission statement the same as the other church? Why don't we all have the same mission statement? maybe to save the lost or make disciple-making disciples. But we spent four-man months on trying to refine the statement. I think we moved the punctuation. The other thing we did was we, we had lots of well-meaning people. We got in a room and we said, you're, you're the youth ministry person. You think about the 10-15 service, 8-30 service for you. Can you tell us what we should do? And you went around and talked to people. You made a long list of good things to do. You had 10 ideas. You came to talk to me, I want to encourage you, so I gave you another couple, 12. You had 15 ideas, you had 20. You put them all together in a document called a plan. We had 150 ideas spread across 10 areas of ministry and we were embarrassed, but nobody said anything. We put it in a drawer and we tried not to remember that we'd wasted our time, we didn't know what we were doing. And three years later, the new minister pulled the plan out and it was a joke, it was love. I was fortunate to be in the room it was an impossible proposition, but it's a wonderful thing to be able to say, let's not do that again. So that's what you do for planning. Please don't do it anymore. Small groups, they were very, very trendy in the literature. 
the way we're going to solve the problem of seeing churches is we'll meet in small groups on a weekly basis. The problem is we didn't make any provision for, for training leaders or selecting leaders, telling people what to do in those groups. And we now have things that are best described as ungrowth groups in most of our churches. They are brittle propositions led by the wrong people, talking about the wrong things, promoting the wrong view of what it means to be disciples of Christ in static propositions designed to alienate newcomers. That's the truth. Most of them are lethal propositions. And we need to call that out. We need to see what that is. And as a result, while we have something called devotion, which is largely practiced by our older generation people, when you ask the question, have you had personal growth in the congregation this year, only 20% of the people can say yes to that question. This is the Pareto effect. This is the 80-20 effect. But it's working the way we don't want to see it work. Only 20% of the people have had any growth in our churches. The other 80% are stalled and unfulfilled. Which means when new people come to our churches, the balance of probabilities, they'll meet stalled and unfulfilled people who are embarrassed about the fact that they're stalled and unfulfilled before a God they think still exists, but don't want to open their hearts to the newcomers. The result is they don't give money. Pentecostal churches, 70% give 10% of their income. Incumbent churches, 12%. Inspiring services, well, no. It's not very inspiring to be penned up with those people every week. Uh, caring about people who might be leaving, well, no. It's all we can do to care about ourselves and to nurse the shame that we feel in an unfulfilled Christian life. Caring about the community, forget it. We haven't got any energy for the community. We're just trying to meet next month's a church budget. Um, we don't want to abolish slavery. We don't have nothing to say about pornography. We're just clinging on to the broken spars of a church system which has not regenerated itself to meet the new challenge. I'm not speaking, of course, about anybody in this room. You're the amazing new counterattack that's going to change all that. But I am speaking the truth in love about the things that we should be concerned about. <laughs> Next, good guy. You had enough of that slide. And the result is that incumbent churches aren't growing for reasons that we could explore. Uh, a little amount, 0.1 of a person for every 100 is switching in every, uh, every year. Uh, half a person has been promoted from our youth. Amazingly, in an incumbent church system which takes its youth very seriously, 35% of our churches have no youth program. Uh, 1.4 newcomers, half of them are returning Sunday school leavers who strayed and have come back. Uh, 0.1 switcher outers, two dyers, one no longer attending church, 1.1 minus. So this is what it means to be uh, declining as a denomination, going out of business. Uh, and the life processes slow down. It, it almost matches hibernation as the boa constrictor or the python begins to, to ready to unload the python, the pig is in the python at the other end. Next. And so what I hope I've done is just challenged you, I hope I haven't run over time, um, on some of the core issues. Be encouraged. God is alive and well. People respect the message of Jesus People are confused about what we're doing in our churches and we're responsible for that. We should repent. 
We're being disobedient to God in the way we conduct church. We need to return to being obedient to God in the way we conduct church. I praise God for a room full of you who are taking that very seriously and are intent on doing that. Now, we've got other challenges ahead of us. How do we do that in an enormously challenging world? But those are great challenges. Um, We need to reinvigorate that thing called church. And this is an attack squad, but I take it that God has assembled to do just that. Praise God.